0: who show us how they are bringing a little bit of awesomeness along their individual journeys. Our hope is to inspire you to always keep pushing and to stay awesome along the way. Really excited to be back with you guys as we get to speak with an incredible individual with a truly remarkable story that stands out as a true example of both passion and purpose. From his humble New Jersey beginnings and by overcoming his fair share of personal struggles, Dr. Alistair Martin's own sense of determination and fierce conviction eventually led to both an MD from Harvard Medical School as well as a master's in public policy from Harvard Kennedy School. He is an emergency physician who straddles the worlds of medicine, public health, and social justice. He is also faculty at the Massachusetts General Hospital Center for Social Justice and Health Equity at Harvard Medical School. Dr. Martin previously served as chief resident at MGH Brigham Hospital. He now leverages his background in politics, healthcare policy, and the field of behavioral economics to use the emergency department as a place to build programs that serve the needs of vulnerable patients. He leads programs that transition homeless patients into permanent supportive housing, get patients struggling with addiction into recovery, and offers patients who are unregistered voters the opportunity to register to vote through a program called Vote ER, which we will talk about. His work has been written about in the Boston Globe, as well as in PR. I am honored for Dr. Martin's generous time in being on the podcast as we discuss the selflessness of caring for our fellow human being, the importance of vision and purpose, being solution driven when wanting to solve problems, relentless mindset, and so much more. So let's get into this, Awaken the Awesome, episode 152 with Dr. Alistair Martin. Here we go. For me, really, on the human aspect, and this can be set aside, with everything we're going through, Dr. Martin, and of course, we want to thank you for being on the podcast, but I have to celebrate this, you and your colleagues and everyone working near and far in the health sector. Coming into 2021, anyone who's seen the light and actually made it through the New Year's, it's something extraordinary that we're all dealing with. Everyone's dealing with this near and far, but especially for our healthcare providers, anyone working in the health sector, I just want to send a very sincere and heartfelt thank you uh, for everything uh, that you're doing near and far. Because I can only imagine, you know, in normal situations living in Canada, when we go in the winter and the ERs get backed up just for people coming in for a common cold, not having to deal with a pandemic. Dr. Martin, I can't thank you enough for everything that you're doing. And of course, with someone such an, uh, an amazing pedigree and accomplishment, it's an honor and a thrill to welcome you to the Awaken the Awesome Podcast. Thank you so much for being here.
1: Thank you very much for having me. And, uh, you know, it's a pleasure to be here. I love the content. I love the mission and the vision, uh, of what you're doing. And I'm, I'm happy to be involved And and thank you for the kind words. It's, uh, it's certainly a hard time for not just us as healthcare providers, but for everyone. So thank you. And, uh, you know, I hope everyone else is doing well out there and taking care of themselves through this.
0: We are. We are. You can't. It's Everybody's dealing with it in their own way. Even ourselves right here in Quebec, uh, we're actually de- going back to another lockdown. Basically, the, the local government has instituted a uh, mandatory curfew uh, right mm. now. So, uh, yeah, because the cases are, are, are growing. Uh, just yesterday, we had a record number of 3,100 new cases. Um, so they've had to take, uh, you know, rather radical measures uh, just to make sure that, OK, people stay home and keep following procedures. But we'll see what that does. And everybody's doing their part. You know, it's a little bit demanding on everyone. But uh, it's definitely something that uh, p- gives you pause in regards to just you being an ER doctor. You know, we talked about, you know, just the demands of uh, of uh, the emergency department and what that does. And for me, just coming back from the human aspect, I'm just a guy trying to make sense of this with my wife and my kids, Mm -hmm. but you having to deal with people on probably the worst days of their life because the the ER, anybody can come to the ER for anything. Mm -hmm. And I keep asking myself, what keeps you coming back? Because just mentally and physically and emotionally, that has to be taxing. It takes a special kind of individual to go to the ER. But what, just interpret it for us, you know, behind the curtain, what keeps a doctor coming back, Dr. Martin?
1: You know, it's funny. The ER for me, I, 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 um, I'm at home there. You know, I think that there's something about, um, you know, sort of the experiences that I've been through, and uh, both, both personally and, and professionally, that have um, given me a perspective on life that, uh, you know, suggests to me that our most Difficult moments, the moments that we have the most adversity, uh, when it feels like we are knocked out of the game or when it feels like we are uh, closest to our breaking points. For me personally, that is when I am most at my creative, when I am most awakened. Talk about awaken the awesome. When I am most- <laughs> That was not planned. Motivated, you know, when I when I when I'm when I'm really just like in the middle of life, right? Is when I am, uh, you know, having to fight, having to overcome, having to dig myself out of a situation or or or, or uh, you know the, the proverbial foxhole, uh, you know. So so it's interesting. I think that for me, um, I am most present out of my own head and, and actually there in the moment uh, when, when things are on the line. And so there is no better job for a person like me, you know, to be in than emergency room. I, I, I could not imagine, you know, and I love with all due respect my, uh, you know, my, my brethren who work in private practices in their office and they see patients. And they see one patient for fifteen minutes. They go to the next room. They see them for fifteen minutes. They go to the next room. They see them for. And to have that happen for nine hours a day, five days a week, I, I have so much respect for those folks. Uh, but I could never do it. I love coming into chaos.
0: <laughs> okay.
1: And <laughs> trying to figure out how do I organize this? How do I find the way out? Not just for this patient, but for the for the department, for the people here, both my staff and the patients that I'm seeing. And so. That is the first thing that keeps me coming back. The second thing that keeps me coming back is that I grew up in a poor neighborhood in in Jersey, a majority minority neighborhood where, like many other majority minority neighborhoods, we struggled with things like access to health care. You know my mom had to keep jobs just so that we could get good health insurance and sometimes it wasn't even that good. And so uh, you know in order for for me sometimes you know to get, The uh, longitudinal care that other folks were getting at pediatricians' offices, Mm -hmm. we wouldn't go to the pediatricians' office because, you know, my mom worked till 8 p.m. She had two jobs. There's no pediatrics office open at that time. So where would we go? We'd go to the emergency room. Just like the same decision made by millions of other families across the country who are living in low-income communities, the emergency room ends up being everyone's primary care doctor. The patients who don't have primary care doctors, where your where your primary care doctor for the for the homeless patients uh, that are living on the street, I'm their primary care doctor. Um, for the folks who don't have insurance and don't and have no way to pay, don't worry about it. I don't have. I'm not charging you anyway. I don't know how you know the billing works anyway in in in, in the emergency department because uh, that's not my job. You know, my You're job here
0: is- to receive care.
1: Anyone who comes through the front door, no questions asked, I'm there for you. So that's the second thing. And then the third thing is, you know, I think you can learn a lot about the community that you work or live in by walking into that community's emergency department, right? Um, It's the Ellis Island of our healthcare system. Everyone is there. Rich patients, the CEO of, you know, big corporations are there right next to homeless patients. Uh, uh, right next to a patient who is there for, you know, gunshot wound right next to a patient who's there because they lost their job at the local uh, uh, central market uh, and who doesn't have uh, the ability to pay for their insulin anymore. Right. And so you begin to see some of the r- the real issues that are impacting patients and how that presents uh, in emergency department visits. So for those reasons, those are the those are the reasons why, I like uh, you know, the emergency department, and and just to finish that last point off, when you understand the real reasons why uh, patients' lives are impacted, uh, and you start to see how how uh, uh, these issues come up in people's lives and impacts them, you can begin to address the upstream issues, and that's part of what I do, and we'll get to that in a second. But that, that is amazing. That's that- the uh, sort of overview.
0: That is amazing. It really brings me back to my childhood because my mother's a doctor as well. Um, mm. And uh, back in Haiti, and I saw her just growing up, and she'd had her, she'd have her private practice. She had a uh, free clinic that she was doing because you know impoverished uh, locations, so she would go out maybe once a week, either to Saint Mark or Acaya or Jeremy, a different Haiti locales, and basically she'd do you know just a walk in clinic, free for the entire village or community whatsoever. She'd provide the eye care. Basically, she's a she's a ophthalmologist can't believe I still say that word but it's something that really humbles you to realize that like you said you might have patients who are really well off and you might have patients who have nothing but everyone deserves care and sometimes that can be polarizing because sometimes you you as a doctor you you don't have to make that choice you're just here to provide care and that is one selfless mission (laughs) It's, it's it's admirable it's really admirable um, I don't like to look in too much uh, into, you know, the, my guest's story, but I did cheat a little bit. I did listen yep. to a previous podcast you gave uh, with Mary Tate on the Dear Pre-Med oh, podcast. Yeah. Yep. I really enjoyed that one. And there's a personal there's a personal chapter uh, that we can't just skip over. And mm-hmm. that really humbled me. Um, you talked about, let's, you, you mentioned her, but let's just call her the revolutionary that raised yeah. you yeah. and how that shaped a lot of your journey. Um, could you talk to us about your mother and, you know, how her story and her background basically, you know, irrevocably shaped who you are today?
1: Yeah. You know, my, um, my mother is where I learned to fight, you know, and, uh, she really embodied and, and still does embody the best parts of, of who I am, you know, um, she started her journey, uh, in Haiti. She was born in Haiti and, uh, was born, uh, you know, of, of the, uh, sort of upper class, uh, you know, folks who were landowning, you know, uh, French descendant, white phenotypically, you know, um, light skinned folks. Um, and, uh, she grew up with privilege until she was about four or five and, She got sent to a boarding school in Paris uh, until she was in her teens. Um, She did some traveling around there. She lived in Saudi Arabia for some time and uh, in other places in in, uh, the Middle East, but eventually got most of her uh, high school education in Paris. But by the time she came back to Haiti, you know, 15 or 16, the Haiti that she thought she knew as a four or five-year-old the story she told herself about Haiti and who her family was within that context, she realized when she came back, we're all wrong. She realized that when she came back, she lived in a, in a, in a, in a deeply unequal Haiti, uh, in, in a Haiti that, uh, really did its best to keep the haves, uh, on one part of the society and the have nots on the other part of the society, And she realized that her family was not only contributing to that, but was making things worse. Um, and so at a very, very young age, I think she might've been around 16. Uh, she started, oh, wow. and you know, we know about this term now, I'm pretty sure she would not have said this, but uh, at the time, but she was getting engaged in community organizing. Uh, why? Because there were lots of rural, uh, you know, folks in the peasant class who were trying to um, uh, push back against the dictatorship at that time. Um, And at that time, I believe it was Papa Doc. I don't think baby Doc had had come around yet, but I think it was Papa Doc and uh, the previous uh, dictator, Duvalier.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: And, uh, you know, folks wanted to fight for a more equal society. And, you know, she was white, French descendant, you know, sort of this bourgeois, right. And, they didn't have those kinds of people, you know, on that side. So uh, 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 in these sort of these, these uh, folks in, in the grassroots or peasant class, when they were pushing on the uh, powers that be to sort of make things more equal, uh, it would be really good to have someone who is, you know, of the opposition on your side, right? And mm-hmm. so my mom got very much involved, so much so that she ended up having to leave the country. She was blacklisted and came to the country here to to the United States when she was about 18. Uh, And like many other immigrant stories started with taking a job in a fast food chain. You know, she worked at McDonald's um, uh, over here in New York city. And uh, you know, really uh, through her teens, you know, until she was probably in her mid twenties, still was very much connected to the struggle to to try and uh, overthrow uh, Juvalier Um, and that was not something that her family was happy with whatsoever. And still, you know, to this day, I think there's still a little bit of resentment. And, you know, I think that what I learned from that was that, um, you know, we have loyalties to, uh, our friends, our families. Um, and with those loyalties come these sort of bonds, these expectations that you will, um, not disrupt uh, uh, you know, sort of the way that things are, the status quo. And sometimes in life, we have to re-examine those loyalties and and renegotiate them with the people that matter most to us. And it might be hurtful. Um, you know, it, it might be disruptive. Uh, but often if it's for the good uh, of either the family or of society, I think it's it's incredibly important that we say the hard thing that we re- renegotiate this, those, lo- those loyalties, because now, you know, in the, the values that she taught me were to make sure that when I see injustice, when I see inequality, when I see unfairness, my goal is to act, um, and to address those rather than sort of stay on the sidelines and, and, uh, pretend like things are all good when they're not.
0: Wow. See right there. It teaches you a lot about, thank you so much for sharing that story. It's a personal story, but it's a powerful story Um, because what I'm getting is also, first of all, it gives you this great sense of humility, but also what I take from it is also the fact that we always have the power to act, however small it's, you know, uh, I believe the quote goes as evil prevails when good men do nothing. Right. Um. So you always have the power to say something. You always have the power to stand up. You always have the power to, you know, make your voice heard, however small. But we can do uh, any small part. We all have a part to play into the greater scheme of things. Right. And which is why, you know, of course, of course, all your efforts, of course, highlighted, you know, over the past um, presidential election in the U.S. and your Vote, Vote ER initiative. Yeah. which was something that really floored me. And the more I dug into it and how I, I didn't, I you don't stop to think about these things, um how healthcare and politics and the voting process and people in the ER, what does that have to do? But, you know, I don't want to bury the lead. And of course I don't want to ruin the message, but what is vote ER and what spawned this initiative, this great initiative?
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well, like, like many, like many, um, initiatives that I get involved in or, or, or find myself pulled, um, to, uh, you know, try to help out, uh, with, it starts with a story. And, um, this story for me, uh, really sort of exemplifies the typical, uh, ER experience. So I was in a, um, I was in the, the ER taking care of a, of a patient who was in her, uh, early 20s. And uh, she had uh history of diabetes. And I remember this almost vividly. It was a bunch of myself and a bunch of doctors, three or four other doctors looking at the computer screen, um, looking at her uh, medical record on the computer. And the chief complaint, or the reason why she was there, this is what we term as the chief complaint, was DKA, diabetic ketoacidosis. It's an extremely rare thing that happens to folks who have diabetes. And it really only happens, you know, either when you um, are very sick or when you don't take your
0: insulin. Okay.
1: And so we look back in the chart and we notice that two days, it was actually, yeah, probably about two or three days prior to that day. She was there again with dka and it's very rare to get dka this woman from the chart it looked like she had dka in two two separate times in one week and so we're all sitting there and we're all just sort of like what is wrong how come this woman is why isn't she taking care of herself why isn't she taking her insulin how could she not take her insulin so often that she gets dka twice in one week we'd never heard of it and but there's something in the back of my mind, sort of ticked me off and I said, well, let me, you know, make sure I get some more information and, and, and just, you know, sort of poke around. And, uh, cause no one had asked why, you know, like what's going on? Why aren't you taking your insulin? So I went back, uh-huh. you know, I know that I know that you're here cause it doesn't sound like you, t- it doesn't sound like you take your insulin. What's going on? Why aren't you taking your, your meds? He said, doc, it's not that I'm not taking my meds. I don't have any insulin left. You see, because, she had just lost her job. Wow. And she lost with that the insurance that she had to be able to pay for her medications. And she had to make a choice. Do I keep, you know, paying for rent? Well, wow. food and the lights and my water bill, or do I pay for the medication? You know how much it costs in the United States for a month of insulin?
0: Give me an idea.
1: Over $650. Oh, wow. Okay. This is why she was in the ER twice in one week for DKA. I was floored by that response. Floored. I cannot solve her problem with a surgery. I can't solve her problem with a prescription. She can solve her problem by voting. We can solve her problem by voting. By voting... We can create fairer laws that take better care of people, that address the issues of the most vulnerable, that create a fairer society, that level the playing field. And when you think about it, and some folks might think, well, how could her voting or you know my voting help that? Well, the way it helps is, look, in this country, 50 million people in the United States are not even registered uh, to vote.
0: Fifty million.
1: Fifty million. The entire population of the country of Spain is not even registered to vote in this state. To country.
0: vote, okay.
1: A voting age eligible people. Not some might think. Well, there's a lot of kids in there. No, no, no. Over 18 years old. Uh, folks who are not who have not served prison sentences, because there are some states where you can't even vote after you've gone to jail once. This is the voting age eligible patient population. Fifty million. It's incredible. Wow. Getting those people engaged, getting those people to have their voice heard, uh, is one of the best and easy and and most, uh, transformative ways for us to transform our healthcare system so that we address problems like hers. Why? Because the same people who are not registered to vote are the same people who are most marginalized by our healthcare system, where our healthcare system does not take care of well. Young people, poor people, and people of color. Well, it turns okay. out that those three groups, they're like me, like my mom used to do when I was a kid. We go to the ER, you have something, you know, even if it's not an emergency, uh, you have a non-urgent medical condition. Like I just need a prescription
0: mm-hmm.
1: or, uh, can you take a look at my knee? Cause my knee has been hurting for the last five years. You know, mm-hmm. uh, these are patients I've had recently, um, these patients who are not, they have no life threatening illness. They're the same exact ones who are not registered to vote. So Vote ER is an organization that helps physicians and hospitals help people register to vote and get them get them their mail in ballot to vote like we did last year in 2020 um, to vote for elections while they're waiting there. Because most times, you know, folks are waiting for a long time and, uh, you know, we want to make it easy. For folks to register to vote while they're waiting
0: yeah because 10 10 hour wait times 14 hour wait times, just like here in quebec that's not uncommon i can, I can imagine especially during a pandemic
1: yep and uh, the good news is it's not just emergency rooms it's you know pediatric clinics and you know private health centers and community health centers so really this has exploded out of the emergency room and is really in every place where healthcare is delivered
0: wow so Just with that story about the insulin, and I can only imagine the person on the other end talking about the patient, they know that, okay, they are, I don't want to use the word a nuisance, but they're very real. You think they haven't thought about the fact that, okay, if I could have another opportunity, probably I would, because we always want to, you know, thumb our nose at people's like, oh, they're just abusing the system and going to the ER because no, (laughs) they don't have a choice. These people don't have a choice. And sometimes that humanizes you, doesn't it?
1: Right. Exactly. Exactly.
0: You can't, you can't, you can't judge. And so you realized being in that position that all these people need to have a voice and you need to make this make this accessible for them and I can only imagine you know with there was there was probably a lot of was there a lot of resistance because I'm trying to uh, paint this for people listening you know in regards to when you have an idea and you you know that the why and the purpose is noble you need to go out to it and you know it's all about getting things done so walk us through the steps of what it took to actually make it to this point
1: yeah it's a great question uh, you know, the way I think about that question is, you know, um a mission statement has to be operational, otherwise it's just good intentions. Okay. A mission statement has to be operational, otherwise it's just good intentions. So our mission was to dramatically increase uh the numbers of folks who are registered to vote in this country through healthcare settings. Um but we had to figure out how to actually close the gap and and, and make that operational. So we did that in three different ways. The first was we created um, what we call a site-based program for individual hospitals or clinics. And what the site-based program was, was we created posters and discharge paperwork and kiosks that we would send to waiting rooms, all free for hospitals. uh, So that the hospital didn't have to do much. And this is the first lesson. You may think your idea is the best idea in the world. Mm-hmm. The person who you're talking to has 75 other things that they're thinking about right at that very moment because they're busy and they're stressed and they and they just looked at Twitter and saw what so-and-so was posting. And so how do you make it easy for people to do what it is
0: you're saying? Don't bring me another problem.
1: Exactly. Um, give it to me as easy as possible, make it frictionless, remove the friction if you can completely. So that's the first step. So the first step was all about getting patients, um, uh, you know, uh, to access these materials through the sites by creating all of this prepackaged work so that all the hospital has to do is tape it to the wall, plug it in, um, you know, put it in the printer, whatever the, you know, whatever the one last step is, we get people 95% of the way there. Uh-huh. The second was we created these healthy democracy kits, which which are um, every physician in the hospital and every healthcare provider in the hospital has to wear an ID badge, and uh, most physicians and healthcare providers wear a lanyard to hold that ID badge, right? Uh-huh. 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 So we took the lanyard and we we um, swapped the lanyard out, and we said we created a, a lanyard that said "Ready to Vote." Question mark and it's very big in bold letters, so it stands out when physicians are wearing it. And then at the end of that lanyard, on the hospital ID that physicians already wear, we created a badge that's bigger than the rest of the ID that stands out. It basically says, Ask me about getting ready to vote. And when physician when patients see my lanyard, for example, they'll see the lanyard say the vote sign and say, Doc, why does your lanyard say vote on it? And I'll say, well, it says vote on it because if you're interested and then I show them my badge, all you have to do is text this number and I'll point to my badge because it has a number on it. Mm -hmm. Text this number and you can register to vote right now on your own phone. Or you can use the QR code uh, uh, on your camera and uh, the QR code that's on the badge using your your camera Uh and you can register to vote like that. Boom. So – the second thing that I will say here is timing is everything. And for us, we realize that after COVID happened or well, when COVID really sort of got uh, got going, you know, mm-hmm. April around then um, and after George Floyd was murdered and after the um, protests started a- across this country and this prolonged period of racial reckoning happened, we noticed the individual physicians and healthcare providers were struggling to find like, well, what is my outlet for activism going to be in all this? Right. Because, you know, here in this country, people were trying to figure out like, I can't just talk about it. I can't just talk the talk about making a better country. I've got to actually walk the walk. And so for us, we timed it such that the uh, distribution of the kits coincided with that period post Uh, uh, you know, the black lives matter protests in this country Mm -hmm. so that we could say to physicians, great. You're out there marching. I love that. I love that. Make sure that you show up and vote on election day too, and make sure you bring 10 other people because marching is important, but the, where the changes happen is in the ballot box. So uh, the second is about timing. And then the third thing that we did was we created a, uh, a, a, Um, digital program where we worked with community health centers to text patients, um, you know, hi, Olivier, this is Sarah from your health center. I just want to make sure that, you know, we can now help you register to vote, click this link and uh, you know, get started. And the lesson to learn from that is you don't have to necessarily reinvent the wheel. We could have texted patients directly, but Olivia, if I texted you and I said, I'm from Bodear, before this conversation, I'm from vote Um, I want to make sure that you can vote. You might look at that text and say, what the hell what is
0: was that? What's that? this?
1: Well, if your doctor texts you,
0: no, you have my attention.
1: You're going to be like, Oh, okay. Let me, take, let me take a look at this. Even if it's the same exact text message. Okay. So the lesson there is, um, you know, don't overcomplicate, uh, go where the, um, where the uh, systems and the structures are already in place and, and, and collaborate uh, rather than us creating a whole new thing. We just basically piggybacked on the, the text messaging platforms at hospitals and community health centers. had. So that, that would be the, the third piece.
0: That's amazing. See, that's amazing. And that shows a lot. Even, even like you said, in the grand scheme of a pandemic, even with all you have to do on your docket in a 24 hour timeframe, as an ER physician, you still find time to, you know, put in your two cents. And as you say, put in the work, not just be about, you know, it's nice to have an idea, but you still need to execute and back it up. You mm-hmm. still find time if you want it. If the why, if the why remains true and sincere and earnest, the how is basically going to line itself up. And that's what I heard. I heard commitment yep. and dedication to a cause. Yep. And um the thing is, because. Of course, we deal with a lot of people, you know, keep talking about, you know, again, resistance to change, you know, how to shift your mindset, how to basically attack. Because, again, not everyone is an ER physician, but what I'm trying to get to is the fact that a lot of people would look at these unsurmountable odds and tell themselves, like, okay, uh, what's the point? This will never happen. Everybody's going to say no. And for those of us in that, you know, that that funk of having that great idea, Walk us through that. How do we jump over the hurdle of like, okay, you know what? This could work and let's make it happen. Let's put in the work. How do we motivate them?
1: Yeah, no, this is a a really good point. And I think, you know, I'm going to switch gears for a second and, and and a little bit more personally, because if you do want to know how this shows up in my sort of uh, professional life, you know, the, the best way to understand it is to understand how it came up in my personal life. I understood the power of, um, you know, sort of believing in the why and, and sort of being committed to figuring out the how, but not necessarily obsessed with having the how figured out. Mm-hmm. So I was uh, 17 years old. Let me get let me back up a little bit. My mom got cancer. Uh, It was metastatic when I was 12 years old and my dad left when I was very young. And so my, uh, you know, the trouble that I had was that, you know, this is the only parent that I had. You already heard about what happened with my mom and her family. So I didn't really have much family on that side. And, you know, I loved, I love, love, love my stepdad right now. He's an amazing uh, individual. And also, you know, my mom and and he were, were, were not married at the time when this happened. So, There was a lot of conversation around, and I even heard, you know, one time I was um, in the next room when my stepdad now, uh, but my mom's boyfriend at the time, you know, asked his mom, you know, where does he go when his mom dies? Oh, wow. And so my, you know, my experience after um, the year and a half of chemotherapy that my mom got and the uh, bilateral mastectomy that she got and the radiation that she got. My experience with what doctors were able to do, they were able to give my mom back to me. That left an indelible impression. It buried a seed of who I could one day become. The issue is that I grew up in a community where no one, no one was a doctor, right? I didn't have doctors in my family. I didn't know what it was like to be a doctor. There were no lawyers in, 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 my community, there were no business people, you know, so it wasn't clear to me that I could do that. I could do what I had hoped for. Right. I saw this thing of being a doctor and a physician was like, Oh my God, if there's anything I could do in my life, this is what I would, this is, this is what I would commit myself to. The mm-hmm. problem is that reality, if I, if I, if I fixated on my reality at the time, um, I would shrivel up and, you know, sink back into hope and despair. And that's where I was for a long time from 12 until probably 17. Um, Just sort of thinking like, you know, I don't, I'm never going to become a doctor. So why even believe in it anyway? Um, I'm never going to do this. So let me just leave that dream behind. Wow. And it wasn't until a really traumatic situation happened, which, you know, we don't have to get into all the details Mm -hmm. today because I don't want to have this be a uh, (laughs) two-hour podcast as opposed to one hour. But the bottom line is um, uh, I found myself in the wrong place at the wrong time with the wrong people, which is something that happens in in low-income communities across this country. Mm -hmm. And uh, I ended up having to... um, uh, drop out of high school because my high school wouldn't take me back. And, um, in the incident, I was, uh, physically broken. You know, it was a huge, huge gang fight. I wasn't, I wasn't in a gang, but basically the other individuals were, Mm -hmm. and, uh, you know, I had both of my wrists broken, my facial bone broken. My head looked like I got dragged by like a semi truck for a mile. Mm -hmm. And, um, it was in this moment where I had absolutely nothing, where I couldn't go to school. I didn't have a plan to go to college. I did not have any of the things that you need to move forward academically in life. Um, it is in this moment where I realized, I'm going to curse for a second.
0: Mm-hmm. You're allowed. It's a safe space.
1: Fuck it. Why not just go for it? right? What do I have to lose now by going after my dream? The thing that I, I was playing it safe for years, right? Like I was playing it safe uh, thinking like I'm from Neptune. I'm ne- I'm not going to, my place where I grew up, I can't, I can't become a doctor. Um, I might as well go, you know, into Uh, retail, like my stepdad at the time, which no, no, no shade thrown on folks who who work in retail. Um, But for me, it wasn't the thing that I wanted to do. Um, And I, um, I decided to say, you know what, like, I don't have anything to lose at this point. Why not? So I started going to the library. You know, I started, I started uh, uh, getting audiobooks. I discovered audiobooks at the time. I started listening to audiobooks and reading biographies of, uh, of, of uh, incredible people. And I started to realize, how life really is, is about trusting in the why that you are motivated by and the vision that you are being pulled to. Uh, and the how often is an obstacle that you have to overcome. And as you get more committed to the why and as you get more committed to your vision, the how Unfolds for you. It it is as if the universe conspires in your favor. But the trick is the trick is you can't half ass it. You can't want the why, right? Desperately. You can't desperately want that future, that vision, that dream, and also be okay with sitting uh, uh, on the couch instead of studying. You can't want the why and be obsessed with the vision and also be okay with going to uh, the party instead of hitting the library for the quiz you have on Monday.
0: Do we Um, work or do we Netflix and show?
1: You either want it or you don't want it. And you have to commit yourself to that. Do you want it or do you not want it? And I think that for me, it was clear, the more I focused on what I wanted, And the more I could crystallize it and see myself there, right, and I'll be specific with uh, my time uh, uh, in this period, I wanted to be a doctor. So I tried to visualize myself. What would it be like to take care of patients? How would the white coat feel? What would it feel like to have the pager on my hip? And when you start to really get into the concrete details of it, you start to visualize yourself there. And something starts to change. There's this magnetism that I can't quite explain. Maybe sometime, someday we will be able to explain this, mm-hmm. where you start to believe that it is possible. And I think that you then start to change your actions on a, on a daily basis. You choose to stay in the library rather than go to that party. You choose to hit the flashcards instead of Netflix, right? And so it, it is in this this um, trusting in the why and, and sort of not being obsessed with the details of the how uh, 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 that really sort of allows you to be free. And so, when it came to VDR, I think if anything, I have become a master at this process. At this point, I've become expert at. I know what the vision is and the why, it, and, and the why that I'm after. The how, the operationalization of it, I trust that I'm going to figure it out. I know that I'm going to be able to, to work it out along the way. But I, I have to always be committed to the vision and, and, and sort of the, the goal that I'm that I'm chasing after and uh, and not be so scared uh, uh, of failing that, that I turn myself off. I guess the one other thing I would say is there's a quote that's been animating me for a long time, and I, I'm probably going to butcher it, but this is the way I remember it. Um, don't be afraid to fail. Be afraid to succeed at things that don't matter.
0: Oh, oh, that's dope right there. Wow. Because <laughs> we spend so much time, you know, with with our head down and putting in energy. And I know this is very cliche, but, you know, just working soul sucking jobs or like, you know, committing to causes or people or relationships that don't matter. And eventually we burn ourselves out and we end up with resentment or shame or just being overworked and overburned because, you know what, we realize and we have to look at the man in the mirror and realize that, you know what, this is not my purpose. This is not what I'm what I'm about. This does not answer to my value. This does not feed my soul. And you need to have that answer very concrete in your soul. If you're going to walk this one life that you have. <laughs> right. That is amazing. That is amazing. Right. It. It, it's a very humbling thing. I can't use that word enough because just hearing that such a powerful story. Thank you so much uh, for sharing it uh, because I knew it was a personal thing. I didn't want to go there, but, you know, I'm happy that, you, you know, you took the time to share it with us. And because, you know what, I really do believe that, you know, having seen it come, growing up in Haiti and you you talk about it, you know, any person, wherever you come from, you have a choice. Things might be a little bit harder, would make it to, to a little bit longer, for you next to the other person but you know what you need to take care of you you know what and i thank you for putting that to the forefront we need to understand and believe because that's what i heard you made a choice and you doubled down and you kept your head down you know what i'm will make this happen and some people might call you crazy but please talk to us about that, our personal internal dialogue and the power that comes with that, because a lot of people will tell themselves, it's nice to just, you know, hear the latest Gary Vee or, you know, Tony Robbins inspirational quote or whatsoever, but you have to believe in yourself. And you, as you said, you can't half-ass it. How important is it what we tell ourselves?
1: Yeah, it's incredibly, it's incredibly important. I mean, it starts with, it starts even, um, Earlier, I think, than what you tell yourselves. It it starts with how you interpret what happened. What is the story that you tell about that time you got a C? Assuming that a C is a a grade that you didn't want to get, right? Mm -hmm. Um, uh, Is the story you took from that, I'm an idiot, I can't do this, this isn't made for me, or is the story... I didn't work hard enough on that one, right? Because the the stories you tell about who you are, right? Whether it's a negative story or a positive story, they're both right. And you're going to believe the end conclusion of that story. So you better choose which story you think uh, 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 serves you, right? And, and serves the long-term um, uh, trajectory uh, of, of what you're trying to do and who you're trying to be. And so, um, you know, I think that the, the interpretation of events and the, and the way that we make meaning of, 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 life and what happens to us can either be incredibly liberating and powerful or can be uh, incredibly, incredibly disempowering uh, and, and constrictive. And I think that w- That's the first step that I think people often don't get. It's not just about repeating a mantra. The repeating of the mantra helps. I can do anything. I can do anything. I can do anything. Yes, okay, whatever the mantra is, that helps. But if you're not actually, if if you haven't gone back and reflected on X event or Y event or, you know, Z story and, Uh, uh, try to look at it through the lens of the the empowering aspects of it. And I'm not saying being Pollyanna. I'm not saying being delusional. What I'm suggesting is is that in every event, there are positive aspects and negative aspects. And often, unfortunately, if you get too um, good at demeaning yourself and telling yourself disempowering stories, the events that you look at, you only look at through glasses that are tinted with negativity. And you start only seeing the negative components. So my, my my suggestion would be to first start with, you know, sort of checking the lens that you're looking at life through. Looking at the lens that you're looking at your past experiences through. And, uh, you know, just assessing, you know, am I being completely fair here or am I, am I only – you know, fixating on what went wrong or the negative aspects.
0: Right. Okay.
1: From there, I think we can then begin to be honest with ourselves around the areas where yes. Okay. That might not have gone so well. Here's a plan for next time. Uh, and also here's what I did really well. And so moving forward, you can begin to develop a mantra that's actually legitimate, right? Like, you know, um, I know that in the right circumstances, um, uh, with the right mindset i can do anything right you know having the ability to sort of tailor not just the tony robbins quote that you read but like tailor the quote so the mantra that you say to yourself and the positive affirmations you give yourself to what suits you and is personally relevant for you i think is important
0: amazing wow oh man (laughs) i'm feeling so jazzed and energized just all this amazing energy and wisdom Dr. Martin, I can't thank you enough. I know you're a busy guy and I want to stay committed uh, to my word and not keep you up too long. But I do have one last question, more of a practical tip, because, you know, I'm just taking the opportunity since, you know, we do have a visit physician on the podcast yeah. as an emergency doctor and with the pandemic coming on. Of course, it's easy to for everyone's dealing with COVID fatigue, but you know it firsthand being on the floor and being in the trenches, if you will. What every little bit helps. And what are some, because again, with the vaccine coming up and you did post on Twitter, you getting your vaccine, yep. what are the basic things that me, myself, my kids, everyone, what can we do? Just, you know, if we can help or what are some recommendations to enough to make your life harder?
1: Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, I think at, you know, at this point folks generally know, um, uh, you know, sort of what the, uh, socially, uh, conscious ways to show up in society are, we can reinforce them. I think, you know, making sure that you're social distancing, keeping large gatherings at a minimum, you know, being very cautious when it comes to indoor, uh, gatherings, um, uh, masking when you're out in public or masking when you're, indoor and not with people who are in your, you know, your living space or people who are in, in your family that you live with. Um, so those things I think are all really um, critical to continue doing. And this is going to be a long, long, long process. I mean, the, the vaccine, um, we hope, you know, once we get into the the phases, when people are, uh, when everyone is able to get the vaccine, mm-hmm. um, you know, we hope we'll be able to distribute over the course of the next year, but I think it's going to be, I think it's going to be a long time, and and so we're in this for a long haul. I would say that you know the thing to remember about the vaccine is, as with any crisis, crisis necessitates change, which then leads to new norms that persist even after the crisis passes.
0: Uh-huh. Uh-huh.
1: We repeat that last part. It leads to new norms that persist after the crisis passes. Check the norms that you have either intentionally created or inadvertently created. And um, now is the time to, uh, you know, really sort of take stock of the ones that are working for you and the ones that could be kind of growing on you that, you know, sort of sneaking up on you that you actually don't want to create. um, uh, You don't want to let hold. Um, and, And now might be the time to sort of do that assessment of, you know, is this working for me or not? I'll give you an example. So, you know, I try to, because of COVID, uh, catch up with one friend or colleague or someone who I worked with from my past. Why? Because I know that it's important to um, keep social connection in these times of isolation um, at a high. So that's a norm that I'd like to continue even after the crisis passes. Because I've had lots of great conversations with people and caught up on Zoom or caught up on Google Meet with folks that I haven't talked to in a long time. You know. Uh, a, a norm that I don't want to keep is I'm sitting down a lot, you know, I'm, I'm at my desk often uh, at home when I'm not in the hospital and I'm sitting more than I've ever sat.
0: Mm-hmm. So I'm
1: trying to now, you know, shake that up and stand. So when I'm talking with you now, Olivia, you know, I'm standing
0: mm-hmm.
1: uh, at my desk now. So these are some of the things I think we should probably do to take better care of ourselves so that when we show up in society, show up in the public space where um, we're showing up as best we can.
0: Amazing. Amazing. Um, final thought, final question. It's always like a running tradition on the podcast, but, uh, it's something I like to do. Just leave the floor open to the guest, whether it's just a favorite quote, a song lyric, uh, a poem, whatsoever, just a call to action, if you will, just for people to grab as a proverbial next step, something they can use to wake up tomorrow and take that next step towards their next level. How, yeah. what, what can we, the listeners, with?
1: I have a, um, I have a, a piece of prose from a um, an article I read recently I've been thinking a lot about and, and I think it I wouldn't generally give this as a, as, a, as a closing thought but because it's called this this podcast is awake in the awesome I think it might it might help so let me read it it's a little long but let me read it here oh please lately I have come to the conclusion and you may disagree that pretty much every experience we have moves us either toward life or away from it. There are some things that suck the life out of you, that make you feel smaller and less human, that alienate you from yourself. They calcify your fear and carve a monument out of your emptiness. Then there are those that bring you closer to life, that grow in you the desire to create, to nurture, to see beautiful things and become them. This is the love that increases your attachment to people and animals, makes you smile at children or go outside to see the moon. Every experience is either life-affirming or life-denying. There is just one trick, though. It sometimes happens that to move toward love, true, active, life-affirming love, means to move toward death. I'm leaving folks with that because the things that scare us, the things that make us feel anxious and scary, keep stock of that. Because that can mean that you're on the, on the precipice of something really exciting and on the precipice of something that you're meant to do or meant to explore more.
0: Wow. <laughs> I was just, oh, wow, that, that, that really shook me right there. It's, it's a, please, when we get off the air, please email me that because I want to include it into the blog post for the episode. For yeah. people to actually either like, you know, copy it off and, you know, just take that because that was resounding in truth. Because the things that you're right. That is so right. The things that, that scare us are the ones that also often makes us feel more alive. Wow. That's, there's a lot of truth in that. Man, that's a, that's a great word. Isn't Thank you crazy? so much. It's crazy. It's crazy. Wow. Dr. Martin, this has been an amazing, an amazing exchange. And I can't thank you enough. I've said it before. I've said it during. I'm saying it now. Thank you for everything that you do uh, to you and everyone involved into the healthcare field, neither near or far. Um, Thank you for your service. Thank you for your sacrifice. Thank you for your contribution. It's an amazing thing. And we are privileged uh, to be able to be on the receiving end of such an amazing and human care, you know but also uh, for the person that you are and everything that you've done that has seen you here and uh, has shown us what, what happens when dedication um, meets purpose. It's uh, it's an amazing thing. So of course it's an honor to have had you on a podcast. Thank you so much for your presence.
1: Thank you for inviting me and in. please keep this up. It's incredible what you're putting out into the world.
0: Appreciate it. Appreciate it. Of course, for anyone that might want to uh, get in touch with you, are there any any particular social media handles, uh, places we can find you to connect with you?
1: Yep. Great, great uh, plug. Um, The Twitter is at Alistair F. Martin. So A-L-I-S-T-E-R-F-M-A-R-T-I-N.
0: Definitely. Definitely. I will do that. And of course, I will include that as well into the blog post. Guys, another episode uh, with my guest, Dr. Alistair Martin. Guys, thank you so much for supporting the journey. As always, you know you're loved. Thank you so much uh, for supporting this amazing mission that is awakening, Awakening the Awesome. Guys, as always, thank you. Please stay blessed, stay safe. As always do, have a terrific day and do stay awesome. Ciao guys. This has been another episode of the Awaken the Awesome podcast. We always love to get your feedback, so please do drop us a line via Instagram, Facebook, or email. Our email address, awakentheawesome at gmail.com. Do visit our official website at awakentheawesome.ca where you can find our entire back catalog of episodes and incredible guests. Also, if you haven't already,